Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. I'm Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so, so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hello, Auditorium One. Across the way, you guys look absolutely stunning, per usual. Um, if you are new here, like we mentioned earlier, if you're new here, we're especially glad to have you. And if you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, we invite you to stop by guest services out in the comments near Auditorium One. We also have a lovely little place back here in the back right of Auditorium Two, and we have a team there that would love to help you in any way that they could. And if you call Fellowship Greenville home, we have uh, opportunities for you to get more involved and you can go stop by Next Steps out in the Commons, also near Auditorium One. If you have questions about community group or equipping class or mission opportunity or the baptism stuff, like if you wanna watch those videos again, Next Steps can help you out. Um, and sincerely, as a pastor here, we are so, so, so grateful because the overall thing that I feel that we feel is that you're a church family that is trying to faithfully follow Jesus, and it's such an honor uh, to do that alongside you guys. Now, as many of you know, we are wrapping up part one of our royalty series today. We've been following the life of Old Testament King Saul for about... 10 weeks, and then we, we've mentioned this too, that the plan is next year at this time to come back and do royalty part two, David, and then do it again and do royalty part three, uh, King Solomon. But today is the end of the road for old Saul here. And the royalty that God designed for us in Eden, Saul did not do it right. Like he didn't lean into it correctly. We're supposed to be a kingdom people reigning with God over his kingdom creation, enjoying and reflecting his love. That's what it means that we're his image bearers. And at the very beginning of Saul's kingship, you're like, oh, this guy's going to do it right. Like he's going to do the stuff right. But now that we're closing the chapter on Saul today, we have seen that he's actually like devolved and become the perfect example of what not to do, how to not live into the royalty that God intends for us. And today we're gonna wrap up our thinking about Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26, if you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that would be good, great, wonderful, awesome, thank you. I promise we'll get there in a few minutes. <clears throat> if you wanna uh, put a finger in 1 Samuel 26, we'll get there in a few minutes. Promise, 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 1 Samuel 26. Now, many moons ago in a galaxy far, far away, I knew this girl, and the simplest way to say it is that she just couldn't make life work. Um, we're gonna call her Jenny today. Uh, on paper, Jenny was awesome. Like the stat sheet of her life, she was talented. She was a sister in Christ, and so I was pulling for Jenny really, really hard. Um, maybe you've experienced something like this, but Jenny would take one step forward and then somehow three steps back. She'd take two steps forward and then the next week, she'd take four steps back. Sometimes she'd be like, you know what? I need to go meet with the counselor or a pastor and talk about all this nonsense. And then she would just not show up to her appointment. She would get asked to do stuff at work and she'd just neglect it or forget it. Or she'd show up an hour after she was supposed to be there. <clears throat> she even admitted one time, I do remember this, intentionally not setting her alarm clock and just going, I'll wake up whenever I wake up. Like she was just so frustrated with everything. And sometimes... For those around Jenny, they would come to her and they would offer her like a kind rebuke. And, and here's the best thing. <clears throat> she would respond saying, thank you so much. And then and she would swear that, hey, hey, I'm gonna do better about all this. And she would say the exact right thing 
with the exact right remorseful Christian tone and you'd be like, heck yeah, look at there, Jenny, Jenny 2.0. That's what I'm talking about. You're re-Jenny. Let's go. This is gonna happen. That's really funny. We're gonna do this. This is great. Turn it over a new leaf, Jenny. But nothing would change. Nothing would change. And she'd be like, well, I don't know what my problem is. See, I gotta switch up my therapist and then I, I'm gonna get on this new medicine and she'd take it for a week and then she'd stop taking it. And she would bounce back and forth between jobs and apartments. And the sad thing was, <clears throat> over time, <clears throat> the people around her found it harder and harder to show grace to Jenny. And she slowly became beyond exhausting for the people that she was closest to. And somehow in this time, like you, you felt bad for Jenny. You did, like you felt helpless to help her. But at the same time, you knew, hey girl, get right. Like a lot of this is your own fault. Like more than once, <clears throat> she said that she just didn't wanna do a thing that she knew she needed to do and she just didn't do it. She chose to do what <clears throat> she wanted. She played by her rules. She would sidestep other people's kindness because she didn't wanna engage. And sometimes she just outright stiff-armed other people's attempts to show her love. And for Jenny, it was clearly more than just getting the right therapist or the right medicine. She lived in an ongoing pattern of sin that messed everything up for her. And so, so much of her own frustration was a wrestling with in her own heart. <clears throat> and even though she knew a lot of the right answers in theory, she knew the like spiritual speak, the Christianese, somehow the stars of her life never ever felt aligned. Now, <clears throat> Just hearing a little bit of Jenny's story, I'm, I'm wondering who you identify with the most. Maybe like, dadgummit, I am so Jenny, I'm 100% Jenny, like how do you know my business, Jim? Are you up in my emails, what's the deal? Those are my exact struggles and I can't get out of this rut. So maybe you're like, I feel that from Jenny's perspective. Or maybe you primarily identify with those around Jenny, like, dude, I know exactly what that girl's friends and family are feeling like. In fact, I know two Jennies. One of them's my sister, and the other one, he works right down the hall from me at work. I know two of them. And man, you are not wrong, Jim. It is so hard to know how in the world to love those people. And I'll be really honest with you guys. <clears throat> Probably one of the greatest joys of my life is being a pastor. I love being a pastor. I absolutely love teaching the Bible and explaining scripture and rejoicing with other people and trying to get people to pay attention to Jesus. I love it, love it, love it. But one of the hardest things about being a pastor is trying to love and shepherd and encourage Christians who aren't seeking to live by grace. Like they're a Christian <clears throat> by grace, yeah, 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 but they're not trying to live by it. Like remember what Jesus said? He said, enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow way. And it's really hard to care for people when they're like, enter the narrow gate and get on the main highway. I'd rather play by my rules or the world's rules than live by grace. Dude, it's tough to love people right there. And for some people, grace has become like a hall pass in, in middle school. I got a hall pass, I can go to the bathroom. Or become, it has become a license to be like, I can, go, I can go do whatever I want. I can just go do it. And for others, grace, this is strange, <clears throat> might actually feel like a weird burden, like it reminds them more of their shortcomings than of God's love. And maybe for people like Jenny, grace prompts more thoughts of the chains behind you than the freedom in front of you. And that's really like sad and scary and weird. 
Now, here's another way, here's another way to think about this. Um, don't do show of hands on this one because a family or friend might be around. But has anybody ever been to an intervention? Uh, and if you have been to an intervention, or you watch one on the sitcom, you like, if you have been, like, how does that room feel? Like, you ain't getting party favors and party hats when you walk in. Hey, welcome, right? That's not, that's not happening at an intervention. You're there and you have to sit somebody down, somebody that you love, a friend or a family member, you have to sit them down. You have to have this really serious talk with them about some destructive pattern in their life that they can't see. And you know it, you know that that whole scenario is born out of love. Like everybody there at the intervention is there because they love the person that needs help. But everybody there, you're also admitting, dude, I'm running out of options and I feel helpless to help you. But the person who needs the help usually doesn't receive it as a loving gesture. At an intervention, they're not like, thank you so much, bless God. No, thank you, I really appreciate it. That ain't how it's happening. That's not how it goes down. Usually they feel the opposite of love. They feel attacked or they feel ganged up on. And here's the scary truth it might not reach the point of full intervention and it might only exist in tiny seed form for most of us, but all of us in some form or fashion and at some point or another, we're gonna be both Jenny and Jenny's friends. And if you live long enough, especially if you're trying to walk the narrow way and follow Jesus faithfully, you're gonna be both parties at the intervention, kinda. In Romans, Paul says this thing to his friends. And I, I'm really, I wanna ask him one day why he words it this way. He says, hey, <clears throat> let love be sincere. Let love be pure, hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Like why does he accent the sincerity of love? I think he, I think he knows kind of what we're talking about here. Like, <clears throat> like that sounds great, Paul. Let love be pure, let it be sincere, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. It's good, it's good. But like how do I actually do that? And how does that work in really fragile, rocking a hard place, places like this. Like what does it look like when the layers are more than we can manage when it comes to showing grace and love? And these things lead us to a very specific question today that we need to consider. What do you do when grace feels more like a spotlight on unworthiness than a light in darkness? <clears throat> now, it might sound too specific. We're trying to talk about grace today, and sometimes you have to talk about it in a nuanced way. So our question is, what do you do when grace feels more like a spotlight on unworthiness than a light in darkness? And if you've been around our church for any length of time, you will know that we try to make a big deal of the grace of God here at Fellowship Greenville. But guess what? The context for grace is not a vacuum. The context is always the ugliness of sin and hurt and brokenness, and it's usually muddier than we're willing to admit. And so we have to consciously think things like, hey, who are the hardest people to show love and grace to? Or when you look in the rearview mirror of your life, <clears throat> can you see times and places in the rearview of your life where you're like, dude, I actually abused God's grace there, and I actually used God's grace as an excuse to do whatever the heck I wanted? Like, <clears throat> can you think like that? And if grace is the thing that restores us to the royalty God designed for us, then why do shame and guilt still feel like they reign instead of grace? These are the kinds of things that we have to ponder and we're asking it like this. 
What do you do when grace feels more like a spotlight on unworthiness than a light in darkness? So, First Samuel 26 is gonna help us answer our question today. And I love doing this. We get to read the whole chapter today. So we're gonna do First Samuel 26, <clears throat> verses one through 25, the whole shabam, so buckle up. Um, also, just one little point of context. At this juncture in the story uh, of the Saul story, David has entered the picture and he's slowly becoming the main character in First Samuel. Uh, because Saul is not in a good place. That's the deal. Saul's not in a good place. And so that means David and Saul are not at good terms uh, right here at the beginning. They're not on good terms at the beginning of chapter 26. And so we get to see what unfolds. Don't forget the question. When grace feels more like a spotlight on unworthiness than a light in darkness, what's the move? What do we do? First Samuel 26, starting in verse one. Here we go. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Yeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army. And Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who's gonna go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go with you. And so David and Abishai went to the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay all around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I won't strike twice. But David said to Abishai, don't, don't destroy him for who can put out his hand against Yahweh's anointed and be guiltless. And David said, As Yahweh lives, Yahweh will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down to battle and perish. But Yahweh forbid that I put my hand out against Yahweh's anointed. But now take the spear that is at his head and his water bottle and let's go. So David took the spear and saw his water bottle from beside his head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from Yahweh had fallen upon them. Verse 13. Then David went to the other side and stood far off on the top of a hill with a great space in between them. And David called out to the army and to Abner, the son of Nair, saying, will you not answer me, Abner? And then Abner said, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who's like you in all of Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people, wink, wink, came to destroy the king, your lord, This thing that you have done is not good. As Yahweh lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, Yahweh's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and his water bottle that was sitting beside his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that you, my son, David? And David said, it is me, my Lord, O king. And David said, why does my Lord pursue after me, his servant? For what have I done? What evil's on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. 
If it is Yahweh who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before Yahweh, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of Yahweh, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of Yahweh, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in a pear tree. I'm sorry. Verse 21. And then Saul said, oh, I have sinned. Return, my Lord. Uh, Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes. Behold, I have acted foolishly and I have made a huge mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. Yahweh rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against his anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of Yahweh, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son, David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now, uh, fun story, maybe some weird names and some weird places that threw you a curveball and I don't want you to get lost in the weeds, but I want you to like feel this passage the way that it was meant to be felt. So Here's what we're gonna do, here's the move. I'm gonna make three observations about the passage and then ask three questions. Three, three observations and then three questions about our text and these things will add up to help us answer our, our fragile grace question. So here we go, first observation about 1 Samuel 26. Um, please note the repeated use of the Lord's anointed. Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed. Now, uh, aside from sermon for just one moment, uh, this is a very important Bible reading tip. We can do classroom for 30 seconds. The biblical writers, the way that they wanna communicate things to you is by repetition of word or phrase. So if you see a word or phrase, even if it doesn't look spiritual or important, you put the highlight or the underline on that thing. And so when I get to 1 Samuel 26, and I see the Lord's anointed right there, that's very, very important. It's in verse nine, it's in verse 11, it's in verse 16, and it's in verse 23. And not only are these last 10 chapters in 1 Samuel, the place where this phrase is used the most in the entire Bible, but this chapter, 1 Samuel 26, is the highest concentration of this phrase in all of Scripture. So if repetition means communication, what is trying to be communicated with the word, with the phrase, the Lord's anointed? Well, this is kind of fun because it's, there's a little bit of like irony. There's, it's, like, it's kind of almost dark humor, the way that this phrase is used in this passage. Uh, anointed means anointed by God to be king over his people. It is, hey, it is the royalty word. In Hebrew, it's actually Masiach. It's where we get the word Messiah from. In Greek, it's Christos, it's Christ. The word points to the ultimate royalty that God is seeking to establish in the world. So in this chapter, who is the Lord's anointed? When David and Abishai sneak up next to Saul and Abishai goes, bro, we can totally kill him right now. Look at verse nine, look at how David responds. Look at what David says. He says this several times in the chapter. No, 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 don't do it. For who can put their hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So clearly in our passage, the Lord's anointed is King Saul. 
And that's actually why David has mercy on Saul because David has such a reverence for God and the things of God and what God's up to and what God's doing that he's like, no, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess with that. But if you've been reading all along and you've been following the Saul story, right after God rejects Saul as king in 1 Samuel 15, there's this little private ceremony in which Samuel actually anoints David as king. And watch, the fact that David knew this and still didn't do away with Saul makes this act of grace even more powerful. So who's the Lord's anointed one in this passage? Is it David or Saul? Yeah, but it's ugly. Now, <clears throat> I'm not saying he should have killed Saul, and I'm also not saying Saul didn't deserve it. However, David knew that Saul was done as king. He knew that his family line wouldn't continue the royalty thing. And beyond this, there are a couple episodes in the past 10 chapters where Saul explicitly tries to kill David and somehow miraculously here in chapter 26, David finds a way to have mercy on poor Saul. And the irony and intensity of these things come to us through the phrase, the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> so that's first thought, first observation about the Lord's anointed. Second, at the end of our passage here, <clears throat> uh, second observation, we cannot, please get this, we cannot trust Saul's words. I don't know if you saw what he said, but we cannot trust his words here at the end of the chapter. Uh, after David has pity on Saul when he doesn't deserve it, we need to be skeptical of Saul's response. And let's just zoom out for one second. First Samuel as a whole wants us to know this. So a few chapters back, when Samuel rebukes Saul, Saul boldface tells a lie to Samuel. <clears throat> and then um, he says that, oh, I totally obeyed, I completely obeyed, and he didn't do it. And then Samuel doubles down and pushes back, and Saul goes, fine, okay, I disobeyed, I sinned, but the people made me do it. And it's, it's the blame thing from a few chapters ago. And his quote-unquote repentance in that chapter is only so other people will see him doing something quote-unquote spiritual. Then, as Jason mentioned last week, the next few chapters, Saul dances back and forth between anger and jealousy, back and forth, and the whole time, he's scheming and manipulating with his words, trying to kill David. And we, we skipped over this, but in chapter 22, Saul even plays the victim and he whines out loud that people are conspiring against him. He knows, Saul knows that God has rejected him as king, but he's just trying to make people feel bad for him. Now, all of this comes back to remind us that we can't trust what Saul says. So go reread his words in verse 21. Look at Saul. Look at what he says in 26, 21. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, David, my son, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes. Behold, I have acted foolishly and I made a great mistake. Now listen, get it. This is Saul, hey, saying the exact right thing with the exact right remorseful tone. This is Jenny promising, hey, it'll be, it'll be different. It really will. This is your brother at the intervention swearing that the worst of it is behind him. And you have to wonder, I, I know you said the right words, but I don't think anything's gonna be different. I don't think anything's gonna change. Like, we want it to change. Hey, we want it to change. We do. But we also know Saul's words are pretty meaningless at this point. And isn't it so hard to show grace to people in a space like that? Dude, that's rough. It's so difficult. 
And Saul has just been shown a great grace by God through David. And so question, <clears throat> what is Saul gonna do with the grace that's been given to him? Now, here <clears throat> we have to cheat ahead for a little bit since this is our last week. And Saul, if you wanna re we, uh, read one of the weirdest passages in the entire Bible, go read 1 Samuel 28. Please don't do it now, do it later. Saul, uh, it's the only Star Wars reference in the Bible. Josh Clark, Johnny Brush, you're welcome. It's the witch of Endor, like the moon of Endor. <clears throat> Saul goes to a witch and he's like, yo, can you bring up dead Samuel's ghost so I can talk with him because I'm in trouble? Not a good move. God clearly says don't do it. And the plan backfires. And because he can't control things anymore, Saul ends up in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, ends up in 31, taking his own life. And it's not pretty. He takes his life in battle. It's not like an honorable warrior's demise. No, it is a tragedy. And ultimately, Saul rejected the grace that led to his own undoing. You know what that does? <clears throat> that proves again that here at the end of 26, we can't trust what he says. He said the right thing, but there's nothing behind it. Right? That's the second observation. We can't really, can't really trust Saul's words, even though it's like, hey, that sounds good. Can't trust his words. All right, third observation. Uh, <clears throat> let's look at the word spear in our passage, the word spear. And this is another one of those repeated words in my Bible in 1 Samuel 26, it's underlined in red every time. It's used six times in this chapter. <clears throat> and lest you think this is uh, just a literary anomaly, please know that in the entire Old Testament, this word is rarely ever used, but in these last 10 chapters in 1 Samuel, it shows up at nearly every turn. We didn't read it, but maybe you remember. You remember what David says to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17? He goes, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of all armies. In 1 Samuel 18, Saul twice tries to pin David through with his spear, tries to literally stick him to the wall. Chapter 19, he tries again. In chapter 20, the spear again is Saul for the final time trying to get David. In chapter 22, Saul picks up his spear <clears throat> to go into battle. And also right before Saul dies, he's caught leaning on his spear. Spear, spear, spear all throughout this. And here in 26, the spear is stuck in the ground right beside Saul's head while he's asleep. So what's the point of the spear? And that's a good pun. It's 50 pun points for me. I also had two other great options for naming this sermon. One of them was, if you wanna just visualize it, it's better to visualize One of them was called spare the spear because both English words have the same letters. So it's just terribly like symmetrical and satisfying almost. Uh, so spare the spear. I also had another great sermon title that like 9% of you would think is funny, which would be better kill Saul, which I think is funny. Um, good, 14% of you think it's funny. That's great. Uh, but both of those are, they're, they're trash. What we're doing here is we've got the point of the spear. So uh, what's the point of the spear in all these, same, these first Samuel narratives? What's going on? Well, the spear in these narratives is about death. Think Goliath trying to kill David, Saul using David for lethal target practice, and even Saul before his own death leaning on his spear in, in the next couple chapters. It's all about death. And in our text, <clears throat> 1 Samuel 26, Saul is asleep. Hey, also another Old Testament metaphor for death. He's asleep with his spear in, his, in the ground by his head. Now look at verse eight again, look. <clears throat> Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Please let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the death spear. I'm not gonna miss. He misses, I don't miss. That's what Abishai says, right? Now, in this 
solemn and strange and twisty kind of way, Saul here deserves to die. He deserves to die because of how he's treated God, how he's treated other people, how he's treated the kingship, and how he has used royalty for his own purposes. And friends, that might sound heavy, but the reality is it's the same with us. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. On our own, if we're doing the best we can, we don't deserve life and royalty and peace and purpose. We deserve death, separation from God. And I think that's why this act of mercy from David is so shocking. But it reminds me of the old preacher adage, if we're not dead, God's not done. He continually holds out grace and mercy to us in the face of us not deserving it. And so woe to us if we miss it because we're still looking to behave our way or manage our way into salvation or behave our way into his love. But trust me, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times people have had to sit you down for an intervention, even if the point of the spear is death, please get this, God still holds out grace to you. He still holds out grace to those who would receive it. Kind of like, kind of like David here. Now, <clears throat> these three observations, especially this, this last one right here, they walk us right up to the three questions that we need to ask. Three observations, God's anointed, <clears throat> Saul's words, can't trust him, and the point of the spear, the death spear. Now, three questions. <clears throat> and let's just, let's start really practically here with our three questions. Um, how do you show grace to others who don't deserve it? How do you show grace to others who don't deserve it? And obviously, in all of this discussion, we have to think about things like wisdom and people who are vulnerable, and we have to think about boundaries and all that stuff. But how do we do this? How do we show grace to those who don't deserve it? Think about how David was thinking about Saul here, and who in your life is similar, like tough to love? And I know that you might feel helpless to help them, but what's the move? Here's the first move, you ready? Start with the fact that God continually holds out grace to you. So who do you think you are to withhold it from other people? Like in the nicest, most pastoral way possible, where do you get off? Who do you think you are? Like if God doesn't withhold grace for you, who are you to withhold it from somebody else? It's foolish to think that you have a greater sense of justice than God, right? That's the starting point that we are never called to be the arbiters of who deserves grace and who doesn't because we've already established it. None of us really do. Now, beyond this, we also have to recognize that extending grace to others can look wildly different. It can look very different. A lot of wisdom is needed here. It might look like immediately forgiving somebody and completely trying to forget and pretending that it never happened and never bringing it up again. It might be that scandalous. And some of you are like, I got reasons why it shouldn't be. I'm just asking. Is that the way that God wants grace to look in that relationship? It might be a patient, tougher kind of love thing, or it might look like David quietly tiptoeing into your life when you're asleep, when you're not paying attention, and taking something out of your life that is actually destructive to you and others. Like sometimes we want grace to be loud and boisterous, like yeah, grace, like fire grace, storm grace. We want it to be this huge thing, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it's a still, small voice, Sometimes it's a whisper, and sometimes it's a missing spear. Like it might look 
different. And this grace isn't general niceness or tolerance. Like it calls sin, sin and forgives anyway. And this grace is present and it's patient. And we show grace to others by imparting to them the same grace that God has given to us. And I actually think this is the most annoying part of this. Sometimes, sometimes we hold back on grace until we're guaranteed that the other person might change from it. You feel me? Now listen, this is a stupid way to think about grace. If you think about grace like a financial investment, you're wrong, and here's what I mean. Sometimes we hold back on grace until it hits a certain percentage of low risk and high return. Okay, okay, now I'll extend grace. And listen, look, that is not the way of Jesus at all. Do you remember what Jesus did the night that he was arrested? Jesus knew he was gonna betray him and he still washed Judas' feet. And here, David shows an unbelievable kindness, not knowing whether or not Saul's gonna change. That's what David does. Now, God is faithful and we have great reason for hope. Um, Just to to throw you a little uh, end of the story there, once once Jenny did the worst thing she did, the most hurtful thing she did to someone, a family member stepped into her life with an act of just perplexing love and blew her away, and that started a slow change in her, and she received that as God's grace to her. And while it's beautiful, we still have to remember that we should not hesitate to give grace based on whether or not we think the person will change to our standards. Rather, we have to pray and we have to beg, Holy Spirit, please, please, please give me discernment and wisdom to show grace in a unique way so that this person will love and trust Jesus more and pay attention to Jesus more. We have to beg the Holy Spirit for wisdom on those things. That's the first question about grace to others. Next question, how do you receive grace from others when you don't deserve it? How do you receive grace from others when you don't deserve it. Now, this one is <clears throat> difficult for a different 83 reasons. I think, I think it's actually uh, harder with Saul's bad example right here because dude is saying the right thing, right? Right thing, right tone, right kind of remorseful vibe. He's, he's doing it, and that makes this question a lot more difficult. So how do we do it? How do we receive grace so we can be what David talks about in 23, righteous and faithful? Well, realize that Even if you don't feel it, the things that are most true about your life are not immediately contingent on the last feeling you had. Realize that even if you don't feel it, you need it. You need grace. Even if you can't discern the specificity of your need, know that it's there. And zoom out as far as you can and be reminded that, hey, you don't have it all together. Some of you know that, but zoom out as far as you can and realize, confess that you're not omniscient and that you can't see everything in the way that stuff all works. Confess that you have blind spots, not only that you can't see, but that people who love you can see. And then take a deep breath and don't defend yourself. Jesus is your defender. Don't self-justify. Jesus is your justification. Don't take yourself too seriously. Jesus takes you seriously. And sometimes it might be a sustaining grace more than a forgiving grace, but go ahead and own the idea that there will never be a time when you don't need grace from other people. 
And furthermore, you have to believe that the grace you receive from others is likewise and simultaneously a grace and a gift from God. And I think this should nudge us to to cultivate gratitude. Like gratitude creates little adhesive grace receptors in the soul so that, watch, when we're approached by someone we know loves us, we don't immediately put walls up. We don't immediately go on the defensive. Gratitude does that, cultivates that. Like if you're Jenny from many moons ago and you can't make life work the way you want, don't think that those people around you are trying to control you or box you in. They're not out to get you, your friends and family. Just like David to Saul, your life is precious to them and in the sight of the Lord. They're not trying to trap you. They're trying to love you and support you and encourage you. And the main way, the main way that we learn to receive grace from others when we don't deserve it is by learning to receive it from God himself. And this gets us to our last question, our last question. Now, um, just for a moment, John's biography of Jesus opens by saying that there is grace upon grace available in him. And it's a, it's a wonderful, sorry, I'm getting nerdy up here. It's a wonderful Greek construction. It's actually an ellipsis. So what John is saying is that for those who belong to Jesus, there's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace ad infinitum. So last question, how do you respond to the grace upon grace that we have in the gospel of Jesus? And, and hear me, this question is last because if we get this right, it sets us on the right trajectory to do the first two. So how do you respond to the grace upon grace that we have in the gospel of Jesus? Now, to answer this more fully, I want to return for a second to uh, the point of the spear, pun of the day. Um, in these Samuel narratives, like we've stated, the spear is a picture of death, right? <clears throat> death. Now, watch. Later in the Old Testament, the prophets look forward to a day, ready, when everything will be new creation. Sin will be vanquished, death can go to hell, and all will be kingdom come and eaten again, royalty the way that it should be. And concerning that day, do you know what the prophets say? Actually, Isaiah and Micah say it the exact same way. They say that people in that day will take their swords and their spears and hammer them into plowshares to cultivate God's new world, and they will study war no more. Why? Because death will be defeated, no more spears. Psalm 46, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. And though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we will not give way, we will not fear because the Lord of hosts is our God. Spears are gonna be no more. Death will be defeated one day. But question, how will that happen? In the minds of the Old Testament prophets and in the Bible, what will instigate and inaugurate kingdom come? What's gonna do that? Well, John starts his gospel by talking about the grace upon grace of Jesus, and he ends his gospel in a very strange way with the only use of the word spear in the entire New Testament plunged into Jesus' side at his crucifixion. And this Jesus, he's the Christ. He is the Lord's definitive anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah. He's the anointed one, not who used the spear for violence or dodged the spear for safety, but who shockingly took the spear of death into himself, the one that we all deserve somehow. 
He's the righteous one, sacrificed for us, the unrighteous. He's the faithful one who gave himself up for the faithless. The death separation from God that we deserve, he experienced at the cross. He is the judge, judged in our place, our royal representative at the tree. And this is what makes the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace available to us, what he did for us at the cross. And we can only receive it by believing that he did it to make us new, to save us, to make kingdom come. And we can only live in that grace by trusting that he is good to his word, what he said he will do. He's not like Saul. You can trust his words and he has promised that he will forgive and heal and empower and liberate and have compassion on those who come to him needy and dependent. And this is why he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why he says things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The single and ongoing response to the grace offered to us in Jesus is to embrace it by faith. There is no other way, friends. And the way of faith is so beautiful and so sweet and so humbling. By grace through faith, you know what that is? That's the narrow gate and the narrow way Jesus asks for us to walk. And this gives us a final perspective to our original question. Maybe you forgot it, but here it is. I'm gonna go slow because this is crucial. When grace feels more like more of a spotlight on unworthiness than a light in darkness, we should recall the source of all grace, the cross of Christ. Here there is a fountain of endless mercy to be received from God and offered to others. And both the receiving and the offering are done by faith alone. And friends, this is unbelievably, irreducibly crucial to the Christian life. One more time. When grace feels more like a spotlight on unworthiness than a light in darkness, we should recall the source of all grace, the cross of Christ. And here there is a fountain of endless mercy to be received from God and to be offered to others. And both the receiving and the offering are done by faith alone. And today, Some of you might actually be putting up a fight to receive grace from God or others. Some of you today might be holding back, sharing grace and love to others, but both of you, it requires something than trusting more than yourself. It requires faith, trust in God. That's what it requires, by faith alone. Now, some of you are here and you refuse to forgive Jenny because let's just be honest, Jim, that's just enabling her and you do not want her to spit on the kindness that you extend her way. Others of you, your compulsion to pornography is only matched by your ability to hide it and you think you need more grace than God has available. Some of you, your addiction to substances cannot be stopped and you are bothered by your friends and family who are trying to help because they don't understand. Some of you can't stop lying. It's, it's become your native tongue and your soul is so spent and exhausted trying to keep it all straight. Maybe you were abused and the shame smothers your soul. Maybe you did the abusing and the guilt imprisons your soul. 
Or maybe you just worship at the idol of comfort or other people's opinions, or you worship at the idol of control or money or feeling like you're right. But friends, please get this. No matter where you find yourself, the gospel of Jesus repeatedly extends to you grace upon grace upon grace. And if you belong to him, he does not hold those things against you. And his pursuing grace to you is to wrap you in his embrace and remind you that those things are not the things that are most true about you. Instead, you are royalty. You are his family. You belong to him He doesn't regret saving you. He's crazy about you. He loves you and he loves loving you. And if you are his, because of his cross, surely goodness and mercy will come after you all the days of your life and you'll dwell with him in his house forever. Fellowship Greenville, I got really, really good news for you today and that is that Jesus is the king of all the kings. He is unimpeachable royalty. And his throne is a cross and his crown is thorns. And he took the spear of death into himself for us and he couldn't stay dead. And because of what he's done, he offers to all of us eternal life and forever freedom that we can experience right now. And that's true. And I hope you believe it. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, fill us with gratitude and humility and joy and worship for the ceaseless fountain of mercy and grace that we have in Jesus. Make us stand in awe of it, Holy Spirit. And then Holy Spirit, give us the wisdom and the humility and the faith to continually embrace grace and continually give it to others. Jesus, we we thank you so, so much much that you are a king who gives life. We love you. You're the best. Amen.